little less than ten years ago, my wife and I and two of our children were travelling by car through several of the countries of Europe. En route to Madrid, we came to the foot of the Pyrenees on the French side, to the town of Lourdes, the well-known pilgrimage centre, where exists the famous grotto of the Virgin Mary, erected after the account of the peasant girl, Bernadette, became widely known. Long lines of pilgrims threaded across the grounds of the shrine. Hundreds of the sick in wheelchairs or on stretchers were there, assisted by friends or relatives. To see the children, many of whom were deformed, was specially touching. There was an air of sad solemnity and yet of eager expectation that permeated everything. We entered what I think was called the Church of the Rosary, and there we joined a large congregation on the ground floor. They were singing joyously, enthusiastically, led by a priest, conducting in what seemed to us a very charismatic style, appropriate for any American Protestant fundamentalist church. But that was not the chief surprise. Rather, the song was. They were singing, and singing with vigour, Amazing Grace. Famous as a hit tune in USA in recent years, but loved for two centuries before that, it was written by John Newton, once a slave trader, and before that a slave of slaves in darkest Africa. Who was he? Well, we've told you a little, but let me read you from his epitaph, composed by himself. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. Now that's part of his epitaph, as written by himself. His life story is more interesting than any romance. It is itself a romance in a double sense. It revolves around one of the greatest love stories known to history and it is as full of marvels as any medieval miracle play. We're all familiar with great names of men associated with or influenced by John Newton. There was a poet, William Cowper. There was a great reformer and slave emancipator, William Wilberforce. There was a famous Bible commentator, Thomas Scott, and many, many others. Nor must we think that only Protestants profited by Newton. As already indicated, by our account of our own experience at Lord's, Roman Catholics also have shared the inheritance left by John Newton. Indeed, one of the most famous of Roman Catholic cardinals in recent centuries was John Henry Newman, whose spiritual experience owed much to Thomas Scott, who himself found new life spiritually through the ministry of Newton. Let us take up Newton's story. In 1748, a tiny trading vessel is completing its trip from England to Africa, South America, Newfoundland, back to England again. It's now between Newfoundland and Ireland. Atheist and scurrilous blasphemer John Newton is sound asleep below deck. Suddenly he's awakened by the force of a violent sea breaking on board and filling his cabin with water. There's a cry from the deck that the ship is sinking. Now I want to use his own words. As soon as I could recover myself, I tried to get up on the deck, but I was met upon the ladder by the captain who desired me to bring a knife with me. 
While I returned for the knife, another person went up in my stead, and he was instantly washed overboard. We had no leisure to lament him, nor did we expect to survive him for long. We soon found the ship was filling with water very fast. The sea had torn away the upper timbers on one side and made the ship a mere wreck in a few minutes. Immediately we went to the pumps, but the water increased against all our efforts. Some of us were set to bailing in another part of the vessel, that is, to lay it out with buckets and pails. We had but eleven or twelve people to sustain the service, and notwithstanding all we could do, she was full, or very near it. With an ordinary cargo, we must have sunk, of course, but we had a great quantity of beeswax and wood on board, which were lighter than water and would save our lives. We received this shock in the very crisis of the gale. Towards morning, we were enabled to employ some means for our safety, which succeeded beyond hope. In about an hour's time, the day began to break, and the wind abated. We expended most of our clothes and bedding to stop the leaks, though the weather was exceedingly cold, especially to us who had so lately left a hot climate. Over the bedding and the clothes, we nailed pieces of boards, and at last the water began to go down. At the beginning of this hurry, I was little affected. I pumped hard, endeavoured to animate myself and my companions. I told one of them that in a few days, this distress would serve us to talk of over a glass of wine. But he, being a less hardened sinner than myself, replied with tears, No, no, it's too late now. About nine o'clock, being almost spent with cold and labour, I went to speak with the captain, who was busy elsewhere. Just as I was returning from him, I said, almost without any meaning, Well, if this won't do, the Lord have mercy on us all. This, though spoken with little reflection, was the first desire I had breathed for mercy for the space of many years. I was instantly struck with my own words, and it occurred to me what mercy could there be for such a one as I. I was obliged to return to the pumps. There I continued till noon, almost every passing wave breaking over my head. But we made ourselves fast with ropes that we might not be washed away. Indeed, I expected that every time the vessel descended in the sea, she would rise no more. Though I dreaded death now, and my heart foreboded the worst, if the scriptures, which I had long since supposed, were indeed true, yet still I was but half convinced, and remained for a space of time in a sullen mood, a mixture of despair and impatience. I thought if the Christian religion were true, I could not be forgiven. I was therefore expecting, and almost at times wishing, to know the worst of it. Let's return to the early years of John Newton. He was born in England in 1725, the son of a Christian mother and a sea captain father, one who had rather severe deportment. John's early years were almost perfect. He was an only child. His mother devoted herself fully to his education. She stored his memory with scripture, with the hymns of Isaac Watts, and precious things. From the age of four, he could read himself and learn poems and hymns and passages of the Bible. But after his mother's death, long before he was twelve years of age, he learned to curse and to blaspheme, and to use his own words, was exceedingly wicked. When he was twelve years of age, he had a miraculous deliverance from death. He had a dangerous fall from a horse. He says, I was thrown within a few inches of a hedgerow newly cut down. 
I could not avoid taking notice of the gracious providence of my deliverance. Had I fallen upon the stakes, I had inevitably been killed. My conscience suggested to me the dreadful consequences if in such a state I'd been summoned to appear before God. So I broke off from my profane practices. I appeared quite altered. But it was not long before I declined again. A little later, he was roused by the loss of an intimate companion. He says, we had agreed to go on board a man of war. I think it was on the Sabbath, but I providentially came too late. And the boat going out to the man of war was overset, and my friend and several others were drowned. John Newton had experience after experience of miraculous deliverance from death. But he forgot these quite quickly. The turning point in his experience not a religious experience, but his experience from another viewpoint, came in December 1742. He's a young man of approximately 18. He'd just returned from a voyage. His father was about to settle him down in business. But before that, he was sent to visit some relatives. And it's here that John Newton met Mary. Mary Catlett, only 14 years of age at this time. Just a slight girl. But he says, I was impressed at the first sight of this girl. Impressed with an affection for her which never abated or lost its influence a single moment of my heart from that hour. In degree it actually equalled all that the writers of romance have imagined. In duration it was unalterable. I soon lost all sense of religion, became deaf to the remonstrances of conscience and prudence. But my regard for Mary was always the same. None of the scenes of misery and wickedness I afterwards experienced ever banished her a single hour from my waking thoughts for the seven following years. Mary Catlett was a distant relation. Her parents and John's mother had been very intimate friends. Indeed, from the birth of Mary, it had been talked about among the parents that she might be a future wife for John. In the years that followed, it was John's love for Mary that kept him again and again from suicide. John stayed on beyond the time allotted by his father, three weeks instead of three days, and when he returned to London, he found his father very angry indeed. But the anger was cooled, and in a short time, John was sailing with a friend of his father's to Venice. It was wise at Venice he had a most extraordinary dream. And again, I quote his own words. I thought it was night and my watch upon the deck. And as I was walking to and fro by myself, a person came to me, I do not remember from where, and brought me a ring with an express charge to keep it carefully, assuring me that while I preserved that ring, I'd be happy and successful. But if I lost or parted with it, I must expect nothing but trouble and misery. I accepted the present and the terms willingly, not in the least doubting my own care to preserve it, highly satisfied to have my happiness in my own keeping. I was engaged in these thoughts when a second person came to me, and observing the ring on my finger, took occasion to ask me some questions concerning it. I readily told him its virtues. His answer expressed surprise at my weakness in expecting such effects from a ring. He reasoned with me upon the impossibility of the thing. At length he urged me to throw it away. First I was shocked, but his insinuation prevailed, 
I began to reason and doubt myself. At last I plucked it off my finger, dropped it over the ship's side into the water. It had no sooner touched the water than I saw at the same instant a terrible fire burst out from a range of the mountains, a part of the Alps, some distance behind the city of Venice. I saw the hills as distinct as if awake. They were all in flames. I realised too late my folly. My tempter, with an air of insult, informed me that all the mercy God had in reserve for me was comprised in that ring which I had willfully thrown away. I understood now that I must go with him to the burning mountains, but all the flames I saw were kindled on my account. I trembled. I was in great agony. But the dream continued. There before me suddenly appeared a third person. Or was it the one who brought the ring at first? He demanded the cause of my grief, and I told him, confessing I'd ruined myself willfully and deserved no pity. He agreed as to my rashness, but he asked if I'd be wiser if I had my ring again. I could hardly answer that. I thought the ring was gone beyond recall. I believe I had not time to answer before this unexpected friend went down under the water, just in the spot where I'd dropped the ring, and he soon returned, bringing the ring with him. The moment he came on board, the flames in the mountains were extinguished, and my seducer left me. Then was the prey taken from the hand of the mighty, and the lawful captive delivered. My fears were at an end. With joy and gratitude, I approached my kind deliverer to receive the ring again, but he refused to return it, and spoke to this effect. If you should be entrusted with this ring again, you would very soon bring yourself into the same distress. You're not able to keep it but I'll preserve it for you, and whenever it's needful, I'll produce it in your behalf. Upon this, says John, I awoke in a state of mind not easy to be described. I could hardly eat or sleep or transact my necessary business for two or three days, but the impression soon wore off. In a little time, I totally forgot it. I think it hardly occurred to my mind again till several years afterward. The ring, of course, represented faith in Christ which, if we are careless, can indeed be lost. But if we are looking under Jesus, can never be lost forever. He will keep us, for while our hold on him is feeble, his hold on us is that of an elder brother. Well, John returned home in December 1743, and soon after he repeated his visit to Kent, and again he protracted his stay in the same imprudent manner he'd done before. His father was very, very angry indeed. A little later, we find John strolling through a city and captured by a press gang, carried off to a man of war. Through his father's influence, he was made a midshipman. But while in port, again, off to Kent and to Mary. It was on an escapade like this, when returning aboard, he was taken by soldiers in the streets of a city. He says this, I could not avoid or deceive them. They brought me back to Plymouth. I walked through the streets, guarded like a felon. My heart was full of indignation, shame and fear. I was confined two days in a guardhouse, then sent on board my ship, kept a while in irons, then publicly stripped and whipped, after which I was degraded from my office. All my former companions were forbidden to show me the least favour or even to speak to me. As midshipman, I'd been entitled to some command, 
which, being sufficiently haughty and vain, I had not been backward to exert. Now on my own turn I was brought down to a level with the lowest and exposed to the insults of all. His ship now took off for a voyage to Madeira and Africa, a voyage that was due to last for five years. He hated the thought. Five years from Mary, how could he endure it? I take up his story again as he tells it. We'd been now at Madeira some time. The business of the fleet was completed and we were to sail the following day. On that memorable morning, I was late in bed and had slept longer, but that one of the midshipmen, an old companion, came down and between jest and earnest bade me rise. As I didn't immediately comply, he cut down the hammock in which I lay, which forced me to dress myself. I was very angry, but dared not show it. I was little aware how much his caprice affected me. I was little aware that this person who had no design in what he did was the messenger of God's providence. I said little, went upon deck, where I that moment saw a man putting his clothes into a boat who told me he was going to leave us. Upon inquiring, I was informed that two men from a guinea ship which lay near us had entered on board the man of war and the commodore had ordered the captain to send two others in their place. My heart instantly burned like fire. I begged the boat might be delayed a few minutes, and I ran to the lieutenants and treated them to intercede with the captain that I, I might be dismissed. And so it was. In little more than half an hour from my being safe in my bed, I saw myself discharged and safe on board another ship. John tells how this ship was bound for Sierra Leone, and he made the acquaintance on board of a trader, a trader who agreed to take him in as a partner, And so soon we find John landing in Africa. He tells us, The day the vessel sailed, I landed upon the island of Ben-Anos with little more than the clothes upon my back, as if I'd escaped shipwreck. But it really was a case of out of the frying pan into the fire. His new master was kind enough, but on one occasion when John was ill with a fever, he left John in the hands and the control of the native woman who lived with him as a wife. This woman was somewhat of a native queen, but she was strangely prejudiced against John. John tells us in his story that while at first she fed him, by and by she forgot him, except to play jokes upon him or to throw food at him. He became weaker and weaker. His distress at times was so great that he went down to the plantation to pull up roots, which when he swallowed them, he soon vomited back again. Necessity urged him to repeat the trial again and again. At last John's master returned and John complained of the treatment and the next voyage he was taken with the master. But whenever he was left alone on the vessel he was locked, locked upon deck with a pint of rice for his day's allowance. John would have nearly starved but he had the opportunity of catching fish from the deck which he broiled. He tells us of his condition at that time. The rainy season was now advancing. My whole suit was a shirt, a pair of trousers, a cotton handkerchief instead of a cap, and a cotton cloth about two yards long to supply the want of upper garments. Thus dressed, I have been exposed for twenty, thirty, perhaps nearly forty hours together in incessant rains, accompanied with strong gales of wind, without the least shelter, while my master was on shore. Now there came an amazing intervention of providence. He managed to secure his freedom 
and live with another trader there on the same island. And he began to prosper. Back home in England, his father got a message to a ship captain, one who was setting off for Sierra Leone. And John tells us what happened in that connection. In February 1747, my fellow servant, walking down on the beach in the forenoon, saw a vessel sailing past and made a smoke in token of trade. She was already a little beyond the place. As the wind was fair, the captain was in some demur whether to stop or not. However, had my companion been half an hour later, the ship would have been gone beyond recall. But he soon saw her come to an anchor and went on board in a canoe. This proved the very ship whose captain had been commissioned by my father to bring me home. John tells about his boarding the ship, mainly because of the reminiscence of Mary, Mary Catlett, the hope of seeing her, the hope of marriage with Mary, led him away from where he was making money in Africa. We might anticipate there would only be a little time and John would be home, but over a year later he was further from England than at that very time. The ship, as a trading vessel, had to range a thousand miles further from England than the place where John had embarked. And during this whole time, John's life, to quote him, was a course of most horrid impiety and profaneness, interrupted by the storm of which we spoke at the beginning of our story. John tells us more about the storm, that when it abated, they drifted day after day and week after week, until at last they reached Ireland, when their last food was in the ship's pot, when they were down to one single barrel of water, they arrived at Ireland, and soon he was back in England. Back in England, John married afresh. That is to say, for him it was his first real marriage, and it was to Mary Catlett. John became a slave trader. Can you picture him on the deck of his ship? Can you picture him composing hymns with slaves below? It was a very respectable occupation in those days. John cared, cared as other men did not care for the lives in his charge. Instead of half to two-thirds of the slaves of his ship being dead on arrival, most of them were in good shape. John was a Christian slave trader. For us hard to picture, but not strange did we know the culture of the 18th century. After some years, John became a minister of the gospel. And for 16 years he cared for the parish of Olney, where William Cowper became his close confidant. William Cowper and he wrote various hymns and poems together which were published. From Olney, John went to London, to a very opulent neighbourhood. It was London's heart, and here came politicians, men and women of fashion, influential people of the British Empire of the time. John had a great deal to do with some of the most valuable Christian influences that were spreading over the country. It was in 1789 that the love affair which had never been interrupted was interrupted. Mary, his wife, contracted breast cancer. She died, leaving John to live almost 20 years more on his own. John in the age of 80, was still preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. When older still, he said, there are only two things I can remember now, for my memory has almost gone. I remember 
that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. No wonder he could write that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. Remember how it goes? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. What does the story mean to you and to me today? It means what the title of the hymn says, that God is a God of amazing grace, that he is so much better than we've ever dared to hope, even though you and I are so much worse than we've ever suspected. The whole Bible is God's love letter, telling us that though we've been against him, he is for us. For us enough to die for us. This is the message of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, from the time when we find Adam and Eve fleeing in the garden to the last chapter of Scripture where we read that the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and that he that heareth say, Come, and whosoever is a thirst, let him come and take the water of life freely. The whole Bible is telling of the love of God, his invitation to come back. It's full of stories of prodigals like John Newton, you remember Manasseh, king of Israel, filled the land of Israel with blood for 52 years, cremated his own sons, was responsible for the Babylonian captivity of the nation. And yet that man, when he humbled himself after 52 years of rebellion, God heard his prayer. God forgave him. God restored him. My friend, let me read to you from Isaiah 55 and verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. My friend, that's for you. There's abundant pardon for you. Amazing grace. Will you not accept it today? God bless you, my friend.